Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadeen Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And again, another little special bonus episode that I'm going to be putting out in the next week or two. And it's with a gentleman who's appeared on the show now. This will be his third appearance. The last time we sat down and spoke with a good friend and colleague, former colleague Ian Donnelly, about the challenges facing the Metropolitan Police. And before that, it was a sit-down discussion about his career in UK policing but this time round I am absolutely fascinated by an upcoming book which is about to hit our bookshelves and Amazon fairly shortly um, but here to tell us more Steve Keogh welcome back to the podcast how are you? Hello mate yeah I'm good thank you thank you for having me back I'm, I feel like a permanent guest on here now. Almost having to sign you up for a membership now the last time we were on the show together, we were speaking about the challenges that Sir Mark Rowley faced as the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. It was a little while ago now, and it always seems a bit doomy and gloomy. Now, you've got kids in the police. Your partner is in the police. They've just announced a 7% pay rise. The Met, I think you're going to get eight with an extra £1,000 going straight into the the back pockets of, of, of opera or police officers and hopefully staff up to the rank of, I believe, Chief Superintendent. I have to correct me if I'm wrong. But obviously that must be very welcome news in your household. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I mean, so I was, I was looking into this and there was a report in The Guardian, um, I think it was last year, where it said um, in, in actual term, uh, real-life terms, 
the police pay has gone down 30, 13% since 2009. Um, so any, any way of chipping away at that and trying to get it back to... I mean, it, 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 I don't know if it's true, but Sir Mark Rowley was talking about um, police officers using food banks, which... To, to me, raises so many questions. First off, how how have we got to that position? And also, one of the things that I, I, I can worry about is police officers who are financially struggling and what that opens up in terms of corruption and being manipulated and stuff like that. So our police, our police officers sh should not be worrying about money. Um, they're doing a dangerous job. They're doing a job that not many people want to do. And they should that their pay should reflect that. So um, I've worked it out that it was um, so seven percent on a top earning um, PC, which is, I think it's seven years now. Um, it's three grand a year, um, which, which 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 is not nothing, is it? When you think of what's gone up recently in terms of food prices, electricity, gas, and all that, um, that's that's two hundred fifty pound a, a month there. So yeah, that's 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 got to be a bonus, isn't it? I did I, I did put out a tweet the other day in relation to the same concerns with regards to when people are struggling for money they make decisions they wouldn't ordinarily make because they're backed into a corner because you've got police officers who like everybody else you know have got mouths to feed mortgages mortgages to pay electricity bills and other utilities to cover and and all those things can bring additional stresses and you want to be able to take the family away you want to be able to buy birthday presents and make car repayments it can all mount up so my biggest worry was in terms of what you just raised there in terms of maybe decision-making sneaking in which you ordinarily wouldn't make because of financial pressure so it's a very welcome news i'm glad to hear it's coming forward and uh yeah look forward to, to sort of i think it's the beginning of a journey back to where policing salary should be albeit probably a long one yeah yeah no, i mean it, but we're not even um with seven percent is the most out of all of the um the public sector workers which usually the police are because because of because the police can't strike um, you end up in a, in, a, in a position where they just have to accept what they've given. So in that same report, they were looking at um, train drivers who clearly can strike and do it regularly. In the same period, their, their real-term pay has gone up 13%. So we've gone down 13%. They've gone up 13%. So that's, that's a 26% swing um, because they've got, the, they've got the ability to walk out. Um, so it makes a change that actually the, the government have, have done something for the police when... I, they, I didn't have to really, did they? they didn't they, if they'd given us the same as teachers, nobody would complain. But given, I say us, it's not me anymore. Um, but given the police seven percent, that's um, yeah. I'll take the hat after the government. I don't often say that of this government, but on, the, on this I will. I think most were expecting, from what I read on Twitter, most were expecting between two and a half and three percent. So I think you know seven percent is very welcome. So uh, yeah, great news. It's good to be able to share a bit of positive news, which is great. But moving to more important and pressing matters i was fascinated when i saw the news that you have a new book coming out which i know we've spoken about previously on previous episodes together that you've been working on it and and like any writer i think it's it's a journey when you're writing a book because obviously you've got to have some discipline to sit down and write it you've got to do the research you know the detail that must go behind that is incredible but i think all attributes which sort of remind me of quintessentially what a detective is, being able to get all the information, get all the facts together and put it down on paper for others to kind of read and sort of draw conclusions and, and ideas from. Yeah, no, that's 100% right. So a lot of my time in the job was pulling together evidence and murder cases and writing in a report so other people could make a decision on whether the person's going to be charged, CPS and that. So it's a very similar process. So for me, 
when I when I'll tell you how it came about. So I, I dabbled a bit in YouTube. I've done, I've done a few things since I left left the police, and I dabbled a bit in YouTube. And I had um, quite a lot of American subscribers, and they kept asking me about Jack the Ripper. And I've got to be honest, I didn't really know an awful lot about it. I I kind of had an idea. I knew where it where the where the murders were, and I knew that they were likely to be um, sex workers and. And he wasn't caught, but beyond that, I didn't really know an awful lot. Um, so it really was a it was a journey of discovery for me and pulling into in that evidence. And and, and when you when you when you look at Jack the Ripper and you do any sort of digging around it, there's so much rubbish, so much um, conjecture, conjecture, conjecture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and um, theories. And what I, what I wanted to do is. is Get, get all through that and look at what is the evidence um if i if i were going to the cps on this and 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 i had jack the ripper arrested what evidence could i hang my hat on and say well that we, this is what i think is done this is why i think is guilty that type of thing so that's that's the approach i've i've, I've taken to it um and 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 th- there's not a lot really available so You've got a lot of newspaper reports, contemporary newspaper reports. So that's that's probably the biggest source of information. There are a few uh, police reports knocking around, but the majority of the of the files have just been destroyed over the years, or stolen, or or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it it was a journey. You used the word journey, and that's what it was for me. It was a journey um, of discovery, of trying to understand. So the, the three the three questions I really wanted to answer in the book was. Um, what crimes did he commit? Because there's a lot of um, there's 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 a lot of disagreement over which crimes he actually committed. There are five that tend to get associated with him, but there were there were more that were investigated. Um, why did he do it? What was motivating him? And who was he? So they're the three questions I wanted to look at. Whilst um, at the same time, um, so I suppose the major part was is if if these crimes were to happen today. How would they be investigated? What would the police do now? And how did that differ to 1888? Um, it was, a, it was a, as I say, it was a journey that I really, really enjoyed. And I hope people that read it will, will, will see that same journey. It's fascinating in terms of the research of the individual, in terms of like, do we still, what sort of, what sort of detail do we maintain? Like, for instance, the National Archives, what sort of information do the police hold and where do they hold that? Is it just, does it move to museums? Does it move to the Historical Society of Policing in terms of these, these villains from way back, back in the day? Well, what's, what's available has come from the National Archives um, and what it tends to be is um, police reports, internal reports from those closer to the investigation reporting to the commissioner, assistant commissioner, etc., um, so in terms of the police um, files, that, that's all that's really left. So there are very few statements, um, witness accounts, any, any, anything, anything evidentially has, has gone. Um, so it's essentially it's, it's reports talking about the evidence that, that is available. And when we look at that individual, is there? did you have the opportunity to look at, I hope I get this word right here, genealogy and look to see if there are ancestors of this individual still around today although they may be obviously hundreds of years separated are there still people with that dna of of jack the ripper out and about so yeah i mean that's quite topical actually because there there have been um incidents where allegedly um exhibits items from from 1888 that originated from crime scenes 
have had DNA work done on them. Um, but the, pro the problem with that is um, the, the DNA as we know it, when, when we arrest somebody for a, a crime, we take their DNA and it's a direct comparison. That, that just isn't available. Obviously, the, whoever Jack the Ripper was is, is, is long dead. Um, so we're not, gonna, we're not likely to have his DNA. Um, familial DNA isn't really a goer either because that comes from close relatives and they're all going to be dead. So what you're left with is mitochondrial DNA. Um, and, and that is DNA that's passed down um, through your um, maternal side but that's that so you, if you've if you've got um you've got your brother so you and your brother will have the same mitochondrial dna because of your mum but so will a lot of your cousins and so it, it it branches out into hundreds and thousands of people that will have the same dna so it's very difficult to use dna to specifically say link a person to a crime um, it's easier to eliminate them because you can say, right, if if in the, in the hypothetical um, scenario we had an exhibit that we, we knew was from the crime scene and there was some DNA on it and we're, and we're sure that that's Jack the Ripper's DNA, I don't know how it would get there, but if we had that, mitochondrial DNA would be able to eliminate you and say, well, you don't, have, you don't, you don't share a mitochondrial DNA with this person. But if, if, even if you do, so will hundreds and thousands of other people. So DNA as an answer to who, who this person is is very, very unlikely to um, yield any results. So you're saying, uh, like, uh, obviously it was quite topical because allegedly there was some exhibits and some testing went on. Do we still have exhibits around, you know, from, from the crimes that were committed all those years ago? No, we don't. And um, this, this was a, a shawl that was allegedly worn by one of the victims, Catherine Eddowes, and there's nothing to, the, the, the continuity around this issue is, it, there's nothing at all to say it was from the crime scene. Um, and in actual fact, some tests have been done on it. It makes it look like it's, it's, it, it's more modern than, than 1888. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think DNA is going to be the answer. And, and the, the published work and the books that have been done around it are weak. Um, to say the least. There's, there's, what are the greatest challenges for you when you write a book of this magnitude? Because it's over 400 pages long. There's a lot of detail in there. There's a great story that you've told. But what were the biggest challenges for you during that whole process? So the, the first thing is understanding the, the, the case. So I, I wrote, my, this is my second book. My first book was, um, I looked at how murders are investigated. And that, was, that, that all comes from stuff that was in my, in my brain. So I just sort of, it's just a case of trying to get it out in a way that, 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 is, is, that people can read. But I didn't, I didn't know about Jack the Ripper. So I've had to learn um, the important parts of it. Um, and that, that, so it took me about a year to write. And um, I'm sort of I'm, I'm retired from the police, so and, and I, I, I could dedicate quite a lot of time to it, um, but it was, it was an awful lot of work trying to get my head around the understanding the ins and outs of the, all the crimes and and the police investigation at the time. Um, so that, and that, that's something I've, I've, I haven't done that before. I've, I've obviously investigated crimes and, and looked for, for evidence, but I've never actually done that kind of research before. So that, that was a challenge, definitely. Now, I've been very lucky to be sent by you a, 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 a sneak sort of preview of the book. And, and one thing that sort of triggered my thoughts was 
there are inspirations behind everything we do in life, whether it be our parents, whether it be siblings or or political figures or sportsmen or sportswomen, whoever they are. But in your book, on the, in the first couple of pages, we've got dedicated to the man who inspired me to write this book, Detective Inspector Frederick Alberline of Scotland Yard. Can you tell us a little bit about this chap and the influence he had on you? Yeah, so that, that's where the idea for the book came from. Because when I started to do the research for the, 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 those Americans who were asking the question about Jack the Ripper, the, the central police officer to the investigation itself was Frederick Aberline. And our careers have got a spooky like parallel. So he, he was a detective inspector from Scotland Yard investigating murders. Um, and that's what I was doing when I retired. Um, I did that for 12 years. And before joining um, the murder teams, I worked in Tower Hamlet. So I covered Whitechapel. That was that was my area that I policed for a few years before. And that was where Frederick Aberline worked before he went to Scotland Yard. And before that, I investigated terrorism um, and he investigated terrorism. So we went from terrorism to Whitechapel to murders. Um, so it, and, and it was it was seeing our careers sort of mirroring each other that then got me thinking well, well how would I be in that situation if I if I if I were Frederick Aberline what would I do would I do anything different um so that that was really what sort of got me thinking about oh that that make an interesting story and and, and maybe maybe even a book and um yeah so that that's where it come from he was the inspiration for the book and when as you're going through this journey of of writing the book to the extent and the detail you are, what are some of the biggest hurdles that you came across or things that really sort of fascinated and kind of took you? Were there any sort of take your breath away moments that you thought, wow, this is fascinating. This is like taking me down a rabbit warren I wasn't expecting to go down. Yeah, 100%. And and, and really, there was, it's two journeys that I followed, really, that I found the most interesting. The first was the journey of, of the uh, police themselves. So Scotland Yard um, and, and, and Metropolitan Police were relatively young at that time. So the, the Metropolitan Police was formed in 1829. These murders happened in 1888. So it, hadn't been, it was less than 60 years. And detectives had been around even less. I think they were uh, the 1840s something. So it, 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 was, a, it was a new... Um, the you know, processes we have that have been established over years and years and years. For them... What what they um, were faced with were, were a series of crimes that they they just weren't prepared for because they'd never they'd never investigated anything like it. And what I found really fascinating was seeing their journey of developing better practices they're going through um, from the first murder where so as for instance it was a PC um, uh, was called was called to um, a body on a landing. Um, they call for a doctor. Doctor comes. The body's moved within ten minutes of the doctor being there. There's no photography. There's very little crime scene um, work done there. Um, it, it was it was a it was a very poor way of of, of handling a murder scene. Um, but what you see is as they're going through the different different crimes, they start to take photography. Well, actually, not that not too later on, but later on they took photography. But they start to take make plans. Um, the way they deal with house to house improved, um, just just little things each time. Where um, a lot of it comes from, because what, what what a lot of the evidence comes from the inquests at the coroner's court, um, and they're very different to today. So today, if a murder occurs, 
an inquest will be opened. And what generally happens is some, someone like me, a, D, a DI or a DCI, would go to the inquest, give brief facts to the coroner, and, then, and, the, and that would then be adjourned pending a criminal investigation. But what happened back then is they had a full-blown inquest within days of the murder occurring, so that all the witnesses would go there and the newspapers would report on it. And they were very different to how newspapers report today. So now you might get a snippet of what a, a witness has said and probably in amongst some hyperbole from the, from the journalists. But back then, it was almost verbatim. They would, they, would, they would write, they would record everything that the witnesses said, which give you a real... That's where a lot of the information came from, from the newspapers and being, being able to understand that. Um, so... But sometimes what they, they, they were getting a bit of a roasting by the um, coroners because they weren't doing some of the things that they should have been doing, they weren't doing. And uh, you know, Ollie, in life, you, you, you learn from your mistakes, don't you? And certainly if, you, if you're making a mistake in, your, in court, there are times when I'll be like, I'm never doing that again. Uh, when you've had a roasting at court, especially from a judge, you're never going to make that mistake again. So that was, that was some of... What they so, for instance, house to house on one of the one of the murders. Um, I think this the third one. Um, the question was asked of the inspector there: What houses have you visited? And he, and he said, "Oh, I've, I've been. We've been to a few. Uh, we haven't done them all." And they said, "Well, why haven't you gone to them all?" And he said, "Well, if 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 they've got anything to say, they would they would make themselves aware to us. The the the, the um, local residents. It's like, well, it doesn't work like that, does it?" Um, they might be sitting indoors waiting for a knock on the door for a police officer so they could they could tell them what they saw etc so he he got he got a, a bit of a bashing from the um from the coroner and the very next very next murder they had dedicated officers doing house to house with um, specially supplied book um to record what the information given by the residents and that very much resembles what we do today um, so that was that for me was one of the, what I really really enjoyed was seeing their processes develop um, until you get to the seventh murder and it and and really what they did on that one the Mary Jane Kelly murder was very very similar to what we do today so seeing seeing that I, I really enjoyed and then parallel to that you've got the journey of the killer was on um, because you really do see through each murder um, an increase in the violence used and some of the injuries that were inflicted and and, and what I try and do is when I, when, I, when I investigated a murder particularly ones that were difficult to solve I always try to get get into the head of the people that were there the, the, the killer themselves and the victim because well, what, what I learned was is generally things happen for a reason people what and if you can get inside the head of a person that was there and try and understand why something happened, then you've got a much better chance of working out who the killer was, working out where they went, working out what they would have done next. And that's what I try to do with these crimes, trying to get inside his mind. And again, that was another journey that I went through. And I, that, that was... That was that was as a different type of journey <laughs> rather than rather than enjoying it you you you're getting more and more shocked but as 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 his as his level of violence is increasing um and and if you understand what motivates killers like him then then it, you, you can see it because he he was killing um it had nothing to do with the victims he he they 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 meant nothing to him they were just a vessel for him to act out his his um fantasies um, and, and when you know that, you can see that he keeps pushing himself. He keeps pushing and making it that that bit more violent. 
um, started removing body parts, um, and and, diff- and and by the end, Mary Jane Kelly's was like the pinnacle. It was like the worst of the crimes, and you and you see that build up to, to get to that point. The, the, I suppose the psyche behind that, behind the nefarious individuals that commit these atrocious crimes of homicide, as you as you explained there, in in this instance, the nature of the offending got worse and got more serious as each one was committed. Why why is that? What 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 what's the psyche that 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 commit allows someone to to want to commit things which are more violent? Is it because they're getting a bit of a a thrill? Are they seeking to see how much it to what point they get to before they even offend themselves? What what's the what's the process there? So so what what is driving him? So the, the if if you break break um why people murdered down to its purest form um, it's the same as why anybody does anything. So as human beings, we're motivated to act by one of three things. Um, how we're feeling, how we want to feel, and the benefit we'll get. So if you relate that to exercise, you will only exercise because of how you feel, how you want to feel, or the benefit you're going to get from it. And that's exactly the same with murder. And for him, his, his um, motivation for killing was what he wanted to feel. He wanted to feel whether it, It's impossible to know exactly, but it, it, if it was power control sexual gratification just pure enjoyment he was doing it in order to feel and if you relate that to um people that do um extreme sports and and um, adrenaline junkies those those people that stand on the side of a cliff wearing a wing suit and throw themselves into the abyss they don't just wake up one morning and decide that's what i'm going to do They've got their. They've been on a journey themselves, where they've, they 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 might have been skateboarding or snowboarding, and that's they get an, an adrenaline rush from that. But after a while, the, the, the adrenaline isn't there because they, their body's used to it, so they need to push themselves a little bit more. So they might end up um, cycling down mountains or throwing themselves out of airplanes or whatever it is. But they keep pushing themselves, pushing themselves in order to feel that same buzz. Um, because they have to, because if, 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 if all they were doing was skateboarding, that buzz would very soon go. And that's the same for him as a killer. So at the beginning, when he's in, the injuries he's inflicting were essentially just stab wounds, then, then he was starting to open up the bodies, and then he was, then he was removing body parts. And you, you, you see he, he's needing to push his limits in order to get that rush, to get that feeling that he's, he's chasing. If we were to compare that with sort of... Because would we define Jack the Ripper as a serial killer? There is no um, official definition of what a serial killer is. The FBI, um, say, two killers and a different, different... What we would class as a serial killer, I think, personally, is somebody that probably... Prob- it'd be at least two, possibly three um, separate separate murders... Um, and he's committed at least at least five. So yeah, hundred percent. He would he would be um, a serial killer. So then, when we look at some of our modern day, if we call it that, you know, um, serial killers, people like let's let's use Dr. Harold Shipman as an example, suspected of killing hundreds of people, really under his um, medical supervision, we'll call it. What's the sort of can we can we can we start to look at the sort of psyche around him and sort of how those sort of murders transpired? Is that self gratification? Is it power control? Each one is just another one that kind of fills that bucket up that he needs filling in a really sick way. Hundred, yeah, hundred percent. I, th- I think 
the tr- in the true sense of what a serial killer is. I mean, look, we've we've got serial killers in London, um, and they they're not what we would consider serial killers because what they are, they run around in gangs. And I, 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 I know some of the gangs that I investigated, there were individuals there that, that would have killed two, three, four, five, six people. So technically, they'll be serial killers. But for me, the, the, a, a true serial killer is, are those ones that are doing, as you're saying, they're killing in order to feel something. They're killing in order to feel power control. Um, and that's what Shipman would have done. It's what the Yorkshire Ripper would have done. Almost all serial killers, as we recognise them, are doing it in order... F- to, to, as you say, fit, um, feel that void inside of them, get that rush, get that um, f- f- a, a, whatever fantasy they do. So it's all, it's all internal and they're feeding their own need. How important is it then for homicide detectives and even equally for you when you're writing this book to understand the individual that you're investigating or writing about? And I suppose I'm leading towards the, po- the, 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 the point here where you've worked alongside or had some work with the National Crime Agency in the, in the co- compilation of this book around that development of understanding criminals and what happens in the background in terms of their profiles. Yeah, so as a detective, I got to understand killers in terms of what motivated them, how they would act... If, if someone was to commit a, a particular type of murder, you'd get used to understanding the things to look out for, like their behaviour before, their behaviour afterwards. Um, what, I, what I can't comment on, what I don't know, is that, it, that real make-up, the psyche of, of an individual and what, they're likely to, what kind of person they're likely to be. So in, in the UK, if, if um, we're investigating a murder or a blink series of sexual assaults, that kind of thing, um, we would get a, 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 you know, like criminal profilers. Um, in the UK, that's, that's very, there are very few people that can do that and, it, and, it, and it's very controlled. And as police, every police force in the UK would um, access a criminal profiler via the National Crime Agency, so that, and there are only three in the country. Have to be licensed by the by the National Crime Agency, and they have to go through certain training, etc. And there's literally only three in the UK that can provide um, a criminal profile um, to to police in the UK. There, there are three of them, and they're known as behavioural investigative advisors. They're not they're not profilers anymore. They're BIAs. And um, so one of those, uh, Pippa Gregory from the NCA, has she's, she's carried out the process that she would do if, as if this was a live murder. And it's called a, a BIA assessment, and it's twofold really. So what she does is um, she does a crime scene assessment, which is looking at the circumstances of the murders themselves and trying to get an understanding of what was going on and what may be motivating the killer and... Um, uh, characteristics from the crime that stand out to her, etc. So that's one side of it, and the other side is a predictive profile. And this is the so throughout the book, I kind of mirror um, Pippa's work in terms of a crime scene assessment because I do my own crime scene crime scene assessment f- for each murder, and I can do that as a detective because I, I, I've, that's what I would do in, in any case. What I can't do is form any kind of opinion on the type of person he is likely to be. And that's where Pippa's predictive profile comes in. And that's, I found that fascinating in terms of what, what she would look at. She, what she won't do, she won't try and say this person is um, likely to have uh, 
um, killed animals or something in their youth. They might have been, they might have had a, a, a strong, a, a lacking a strong father figure. Or not none, none of that wishy-washy type of stuff. What she does is she looks at characteristics this killer is likely to have that is going to be useful to the police. So, for instance, she'll look at she looks at the age of the person. Um, their employment status, their criminal history, that kind of thing. So build up a picture of what is most, what this killer is most likely to be. And she bases that on um, evidence from previous crimes, from um, uh, academic study, etc. So she, she uses twofold. She uses her own experience and, and, and the research and ac academic study to come up with a best picture of what the person looks like which can be really useful, and particularly in, in a case where, like this. So imagine in, if we were investigating these killings now. In terms of potential suspects, you could have, you, you would have hundreds, I mean, literally hundreds of potential suspects, um, people that were in and around the crime scene at the time, people who may have had um, animosity towards the victims, people in the area with similar MOs, that kind of thing. And you could, you could end up with dozens and hundreds of people. And... Regardless of how many how many resources the police would have, they wouldn't be able to look at all those people at the same time. So what Pippa's work really does is help help the police to prioritise who they should be looking at in terms of like so, for instance, um, the killers that commit these type of crimes tend to be in their late twenties and, and their thirties. So what that what that allows you to do is prioritise people within that age group, and you look at those first. That doesn't mean you you ignore all the others. But you have you have to have a you have to have um, a process of of filtering these suspects. You can't I say you can't look them all at the same time. So Pippa's work would, would help with that, and I, I find I found it fascinating her her um, input to the book. It sounds incredible to have that level of sort of understanding as to an, as to an individual's possible background and antecedents and um, characteristics, which which uh, you know are sort of the ingredients. Of, of the individual that's committed such an atrocious crime. And it's a, obviously been a huge help for you in terms of putting the book together and giving readers that real in-depth understanding as to kind of who this character is and what their background would have been like. It, it's a, it's almost groundbreaking, really, in terms, in terms of sort of crime writing. Yeah, and, and I, I feel immensely um, humbled that um, the National Crime Agency agreed to do this because... They've never gone public with their work before. They've never published um, a, a profile like, like this. So for them to have agreed to do that for, for my book, I, I mean, I can't, I can't thank them enough. Um, and yeah, it, it, it just adds so much to it for me um, and hope, hopefully the readers too. What was the process like in getting them on board to take part in what is a first, really? Yeah, so I mean... <laughs> in life you don't ask you don't get do you so i i asked i asked pippa um she she thought it sounded fascinating um no one had ever done it before um there was a profile done by um an fbi agent um in in the in the us i think it was in the 80s or maybe in, maybe in the 90s but certainly in the uk no one had ever no one had ever done a proper um on jack the ripper no so this so so for her um this to be able to do that on probably the most famous killer in history um, was was obviously something that piqued her interest. 
and she went to the NCA, her bosses, and said, look, I'd like to do this. Is it possible? And they agreed. And, and, and I'm, I'm really thankful for them to be able to do that. And it adds a lot, for me, it adds a lot of credibility to the book and it adds, adds an aspect that, that no one's ever seen before. So talking about the book and obviously sort of the conclusion of it in terms of when you finish writing what is a fantastic piece of material, what's it like when you put that last full stop in or write that last sentence and you close it, ready to send it off to an editor to have a read? That must be quite a, a not only a relief, but quite, you know, very jubilant, I, I guess, of sort of reaching the finish line. Yeah, it's mixed emotions, really. You def- definitely relief because it takes a long time to write a book. I mean, writing a book is really hard work. It, it, I mean, it, you, you, you're pouring so much into it, your heart and soul, it really is. So so I, I, I fully understand, like, it's, it's like a baby. It's like your baby that you're growing. And, um, yeah, and, and so when you send that out to people to read for the first time, it's really it's nerve-wracking because you like... Are they going to just say it's rubbish? <laughs> you know what I mean. And and so so like when when people put reviews and stuff on um, Amazon and that to, for, for an author it means so much that if someone if somebody likes it um, and even if they don't I mean like I, I, my first book I, was like, I don't get all good reviews and even the bad ones I still take things from as long as long as as long as they're constructive <laughs> I just say what a load of rubbish. Um, because then, then you can think, well, like, actually, they've got a point, or, or you can't. You, we, 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 same with anything in life, you can't please everybody. Um, but yeah, it is nerve. It, it's it's a relief, but it is nerve wracking, and and especially when you release it, um, because at the moment there are probably no more than about I don't know, ten, fifteen people have read it. Um, so when it goes out into the big wide world, and it is really scary because you don't know how it's going to be received. Well, what's that journey like, you know, in terms of releasing a book out into, as you described, the big wide world? Is, is that a nervous day for you? Are, you? are you, I suppose, anxious in terms of sales and numbers? Because it is a numbers game. Obviously, you want to sell it. You want it to get out there because obviously it's 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 important, you know, for you in terms of it, it's a, a reward in terms of all the effort you've put into it. Is that day one quite a stressful day or is it the week that's stressful or is it just the coming weeks and months when you start to see the reviews flowing in? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is stressful all the way. I mean, the whole thing really is stressful because I, I, I got a, I, I got a, a deal with a, a publishers and they give you a date and you've got to finish it by that date. So that's that's the first stress that I've got. I've got to get this finished by then. Um then all the ed, like the the edit, you send it off the editor, and they'll come back with all these changes, and you've got to go through it all, and so that that's all stress. Then then you're releasing it, and it's like, are people going to think it's a load of rubbish? That's stress. Then you're seeing the reviews coming in, and you're thinking, well, at least some people like it. Um, and then eventually, yeah, eventually after a while, you kind of you can you can relax, and it is what it is, and you understand whether people like it or not. But yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of stress involved. I mean, it's a good job I've got no hair because I think I probably I probably would lose it through this process. Well, we're both you know we're both in the same camp there. But uh, you know, because I must admit, I watch quite closely um, another very successful author who's left policing, John Sutherland, former Met 
Borough Commander, who's released a number of books and seems to be doing tremendously well on the, on the writing front. I'm always quite intrigued as to kind of the, the thoughts, the feelings and the anxieties around that release date. But what I wanted to ask is, is, is this the start of a journey for you in terms of looking at historical, very historical homicides and, and giving people that are fascinated with it, areas of history around crime another angle as to kind of who these individuals may have been hundreds of years ago committing these crimes? Yes, it's definitely something I've got in the back of my mind. I mean, the worst time to ask an author, um, certainly in my case... It's, it's after they, they've just written a book. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't ever want to, If you ask me right now, I don't ever want to write a book again. If you ask me in, in a few months' time, I might be, OK, like, I'm, I'm ready to, to go back on that journey again. Um, but, yeah, it's, de- it's definitely something I've got, I've got in my mind. And um, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say no. And having read this, you know, I, I, I'm sure there's been plenty of TV documentaries and drama series. This gives everything a whole new light, especially when you add in that value around the the behavioural piece. Is this something that could take off into a sort of drama series, a Netflix? What well, you know, there's there's got to be opportunities from this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've had, I've had conversations with um, a number of TV companies. So, yeah, that's, that's, there definitely, hopefully, there's some kind of potential there, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. So give us an understanding as to sort of official release date. I know pre-orders are out there. I put a, a tweet out um, the other day to let people know that you were coming on for your third instalment of Protect and Serve and that we were going to be talking about this book. And we're already we've had one person who said they've already pre-ordered. I've pre-ordered a copy. I think you're sending me a signed copy, so I'll have two in the bank. So <laughs> what's the uh, what's the date and what's the release date and, and where can people buy a, a, a copy of the book? So, so we, we, we come out on the this, – this is now the, coming out on the 21st of – Yes, July, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friday. Correct. So it, it came out yesterday. <laughs> it, it came out on the it's on it's on the twentieth. So um, yeah. So by the time people are listening to this, you, you you can get a copy. Fantastic. So listen, Steve, it's been absolutely brilliant to get some insights as ever into this new little project. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I was a huge fan of the first book, Murder Investigation Team. To be honest with you. As an operational cop, never a detective, it was fascinating for me to get an understanding as to kind of what detectives want to think about when they go to crime scenes and when they go to serious serious allegations and, you know, homicide particularly. Uh, I'm quite sure there's, there's definitely stuff I learned in that first book. I'm very much looking forward to getting my head stuck into this second book and, uh, more importantly, looking forward to seeing what comes as a result of this. So, listen, for this little bonus episode that I'm putting out to all those followers both here in the UK and overseas, thank you ever so much for coming on the show for the third time. I don't think it'll be the last. I always like to get you on to get your thoughts and feelings around many different topic, subject matters. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Best of luck with the book. No, mate, thank you very much for having me. It really is appreciated. Yeah, and, and whoever does buy it and read it, I really, really do hope you enjoy it. Fantastic. All right, Steve, best of luck. Speak soon. Thanks, mate. Take care. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.